Good morning, gentlemen. It's always encouraging to me to be here. And I, uh, usually Wednesday night, I'm thinking, why did I volunteer to do this? And then by the time I, I get to about 6 a.m., I'm like, man, I'm so excited that I'm doing this. Uh, I'm filling in uh, for Barton. You might have seen Barton on your schedule. You know, you wonder, is, is Barton just on permanent vacation? Well, with the demise of Ole Miss football, Barton just doesn't want to show his face. So maybe if they, uh, but you would have thought after this win last week that maybe he would show his face. Uh, hopefully he'll be uh, back with us uh, soon. And I wanted to let you know, this is the first time that I've had the opportunity to speak to you um, after the uh, announcements has been made public of our new senior pastor, George Robertson. And I am so excited about you getting to, uh, to sit under George Robertson's preaching beginning in January. We're going to be, you know, obviously continuing through Hebrews, and George is going to be uh, beginning uh, his ministry at Amen uh, in the first part of January, and he's going to be the, the main teacher um, here starting then. George and I went to college together. I actually lived on the same hall uh, in, uh, in college together. We've never served in the same places, but we've always kind of known about each other. Uh, George has uh, taken it upon himself in different contexts within our church to, to tell uh, stories that maybe aren't very flattering about me when I was in college. Um, I'm going to resist that temptation. I'm going to be a better man and uh, not share any of those. I will say this, though. I mean, right from the get-go, George and I were both in uh, theology classes together. We're both biblical studies majors. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of the biblical studies majors were wondering why I was there. I was uh, a guy that played on the soccer team, and nobody, everybody at my school thought nobody on the soccer team is a Christian, so why in the world is Todd Erickson in the class? Um, but I knew, not only did I know that George Robertson loved the Lord, but this guy from, like, day one was a preacher. I remember it was the only student I ever knew who ever was allowed to, like, speak in chapel. None of the rest of us ever got asked to speak in chapel. George did. Um, he does, he does uh, flatter me with what he said, who he said I was in college. I'll have to say this about him. I think he became like president of the student body like his sophomore year uh, at school. I mean, this guy was a leader. Uh, he was an amazing preacher from day one. He was still in seminary when a church called him to be a pastor. I mean, that's the gifts that this guy has. So again, my excitement about you uh, getting to sit under his preaching at Amen on Thursday mornings could... Uh, could not be greater than it is. And I'm also just so thrilled that we're going through the book of Hebrews uh, this year. This is a fascinating book. And you've been in it for a few weeks now. Absolutely fascinating how the book of Hebrews knits together our whole Bible. How we really get a sense of of the arc of redemptive history just through this book. How this, uh, this book draws us into different places in our Bibles. In fact, this morning, I'm going to do something that I normally don't do when I teach. And I'm going to actually have us moving all over our Bibles. So go ahead and get ready. For those of you that grew up as Baptists like me, the Bible drills uh, skills that you had when you were young, they're going to come in handy this morning because we're going to be in all these different places. And the reason I think that's important for us to do this morning is because that's what the writer of Hebrews wanted us to see. He wanted us to see how these different places in the Old Testament and the ministry of Christ were connected to all these things. And as you heard David and even Dick talk about last week, the reason the writer of Hebrews was doing this was because he was writing to a group of Hellenistic or Messianic Jews, 
Jewish people who were now scattered throughout the Roman Empire, and they were struggling under persecution. And they were wondering whether or not following Christ was, was really worth it, whether or not this is something that, uh, uh, that they were right in doing. Did they have, did they have the right message? Did they, did they have the right Messiah? Um, it ra- reminds me of what John the Baptist, who, who actually was uh, sanctified or set apart as the one who would, who would prepare the way for Christ. But you remember when John the Baptist was arrested and he, he sent some of his disciples to Jesus and said, can you ask him, ask Jesus, um, are you the Messiah or should we wait for another? So there's John the Baptist who commissioned by God to prepare the way. He was there and witnessed the baptism of Christ and heard the voice. And yet he, even he struggled to hold fast to his confidence when he faced persecution when he was there in prison. And these uh, Jewish believers under severe persecution, as Dick talked about last week, are wondering, can we hang in there? Is this something we can, we can, we can deal with? Is this, do we have the right Christ? Do we have the right religion? You know, my, um, I guess the closest or uh, greatest I've ever known about persecution is not uh, my own experience, but about 15 years ago, I had the opportunity to go speak uh, at a refugee camp on the border of Sudan and Ethiopia. It was a little town called uh, Bonga, right there on the border. And we were flying in for a week to work in this refugee camp with a, with a group of people, this a tribe, the Uduks, who were from southern Sudan. And years and years ago, actually decades before this, there were two uh, phenomenal women, uh, single women, missionaries who had gone to the south of Sudan and by the power of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, um, hundreds and hundreds of these Uduk uh, uh, men and women had come to know Christ. And there was really just this mini revival there among that people group. And then in the wars that took place in south of Sudan, these people were severely persecuted. I mean, not just that their stuff was taken, but that they were beaten. They faced torture and they fled, and with the help of the United Nations, they were here in this United Nations refugee camp. And by the time we got there in 2001, they had been there in that refugee camp uh, for about a decade. And we were there to, to minister as a, a, a conference to them. They had invited us to be there. And I'll never forget the guide that, uh, my interpreter, a young man there who was probably around 30 years old, so content in the Lord, so... Um, uh, such a servant of all of us there, and so happy. I remember one time, about halfway through the week, we were working on something, and he got a little hot. He, he asked, is okay if I take my shirt off? I said, fine, yeah, that's, that's fine. A little more discreet, in, in, even in this refugee camp than maybe we were in the United States. He takes his shirt off, and I could see the scars across his back, stripes of, of being beaten, of being whipped as a result. I never asked him about it. I didn't know if it was appropriate. But I, but I noticed in this refugee camp, after 10 years of being there, that one of their greatest struggles was, is, is this Jesus really supreme? Because we faced persecution, and we stood up under it, and we fled, and now we're in this refugee camp, but they just didn't know if they'd ever get to go home. And they were just in this holding place, and they were struggling with this idea, is Jesus supreme? Is he still with us? 
Is he still in control? Is he still sovereign? And that's exactly what's being faced by these uh, Jewish believers that the writer of Hebrews is writing to. Can we stand up under this? Is Jesus still supreme? Is he in control? And so that's where we pick up. That's the context for our reading this morning. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3. Just reading those first six verses. Would you follow along with me? The writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much, as, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, before we look, first of all, at point one, I just want to point out right there in the opening section three phrases that are very important for us. First of all, holy brothers, heavenly calling. We can't just skip over that. We know this is being written, written to, uh, to uh, Jewish believers, but let's just think for a second about how amazing it is to be called holy brothers and to think about our heavenly calling. And if you have given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, if your life is hidden in Christ, then you are a holy brother. What does that mean? Well, it's a powerful statement. First of all, holy doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you have all your stuff together. It means this, that you've been set apart for God's purposes. God himself has set you apart for his purposes. He's taken what is common, you and me, and he has made it holy. He has made it special unto himself. And the writer was wanted, to, wanted these Jewish believers to know, you are set apart as an under God. And you're a brother. You're a co-heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to talk about uh, not that Moses was a servant, that Christ is a son. And we are brothers with Christ, as it was talked about last week, as Dick spoke about. And not only that, but there's a heavenly calling. The calling of your life is something that God has designed no matter what your occupation is. So it's not just that I have a heavenly calling because I'm a pastor. Whatever you do for a, an occupation, you have a, have a heavenly calling in that occupation, in this location, at this time. So as those Jewish believers needed to be encouraged that they are holy brothers set apart for a special calling, you too and myself, we need to be reminded of that this morning. And then he says, I want you to consider Jesus. And if anything, that's the focus of Hebrews. Consider Jesus. Look at Jesus. You're facing persecution. Your, your, your confidence is wavering. Your hope is, is, uh, is, seems unsettled. Consider Jesus. And that's what we're going to be doing here this morning. And so first of all, and by the way, I don't know if you noticed these cool red lights that all of a sudden flashed behind me. Apparently, uh, maybe, maybe Lon and others who are in charge are going to have lasers come across, too, at some point. No, we just can't turn off these red lights. So you're just going to have to enjoy the special show. Maybe there'll be some dry ice smoke that comes out later, too, and 
at the climax, at a, at a great moment, we'll do that. Uh, point number one, the similarity of Jesus with Moses. The similarity of Jesus with Moses. In this section, chapter 3, verse 1, through chapter 4, verse 13, we're going to look at the comparison and the contrast of Jesus and Moses. And the writer of Hebrews is making a very important point. You say, well, why, why Moses? Why does he have to compare with Moses? Well, because in the Jewish faith, Moses and Elijah, I mean, they were, they, were the, they were the great prophets. They were the ones who had the voice of God. Moses is the one who's led, them out of, uh, led the people out of uh, Egypt. He was the one that, that took slaves and made them a nation. He's the one who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. So he's the voice of God to, to, uh, to Jewish people. And so was, they would say, yes, there's, there's no one greater than Moses. The writer of Hebrews is like, no, let's be reminded that there is someone. But let's look at the similarities here. Let's look at how Moses and, and Jesus are similar. And that's why you see at the Mount of Transfiguration, remember that? When, it, when the disciples, or Peter, James, and John were taken with Jesus up to the Mount, and there appeared before him Moses and Elijah. Why those two? Why are those two the ones that appeared? Because the point was being made to those disciples that Jesus was greater than Moses and Elijah. And that they were actually there to worship the Lord. (laughs) And it wasn't that they were great. It was that Jesus was great. That he had that office that was even greater. But what are the similarities? First, letter A. that, That they both were an apostle and a high priest, apostle and high priest. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in heaven calling, consider Jesus the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Priest, we've already talked about last week, and that makes sense, that there was in some sense, Moses was a priest. Uh, He was the go-between between God and God's people. But this title of apostle is unique here. Don't often think about Jesus being called an apostle. Apostle literally means the sent one, one who is sent. And that's the way in which the writer of Hebrews wants them to understand this. That Moses was an apostle of God. He was sent of God. He was an envoy, a messenger of God. And Christ himself was the first apostle, the ultimate apostle, the one sent by God to speak to us. And so there's a similarity there. I said I was going to go through a lot of different scripture. I want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17. And let's look at the apostleship of Jesus. John chapter 17. Begin reading verse 15. Remember that uh, we're here in John 17. We're in the middle of the upper room discourse. So John 13 through 18, the, the apostle John, in his gospel, wants to give a fuller, uh, he wants to give greater detail to what took place on the night that Jesus was betrayed, and particularly at the Last Supper. So these are, these are things at the Last Supper and then also at the Garden of Gethsemane. And in John chapter 17, beginning at verse 15, it says this, talk, Jesus talking to his Father, praying actually, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He's talking about his disciples, praying to the God the Father regarding the disciples there. Verse 16, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And here it is, as you sent me into the world, so I am sent them into the world. 
And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask these only for myself, but also for those who believe in me through their word. So what he's saying here, I have been sent by you, Father, and I'm sending them, these apostles. I have been sanctified, been set apart for special purposes. They're going to be set apart for special purposes. Then in verse 20 it says, and not only these apostles here, but everyone who hears my name. So everyone here in this room who's given their life to Christ. That you too are to be the sent ones. And so here's the example of Moses described uh, helping us to understand Jesus. And then letter B. Faithful in his appointment. Faithful in his appointment. It says, he who was faithful to him appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. The word faithful here comes up a lot. And it's a key word in these six verses. That, that, Jesus, that Moses was faithful and Jesus was faithful. Turn now in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 12. We'll get a picture of this in Numbers. And we'll see exactly where the writer of Hebrews even got this phrase. You're going to see this exact phrase in Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12, this is where Miriam and Aaron are complaining about the leadership of Moses. So they're complaining that Moses maybe probably shouldn't be the leader. You know, criticizing basically their pastors, what's taking place here. So as a pastor, I really like this right here. Um, because God stands up for Moses, the pastor. Look what he says, um, or look what it says in verse 4 of uh, Numbers chapter 12. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three came out. That would be a scary moment. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. Again, terrifying moment. And he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself, make myself known to him in a vision, and I speak with him in a dream. Not so my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, not in riddles, and he, hold, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? This is exactly where the writer of Hebrews is getting this. That exact phrase. God said, Moses is faithful in all my house. I don't just speak to him in dreams. I speak to him mouth to mouth, face to face. We converse, it says. So Moses is faithful in the mission to which I have sent him. And he's completed that mission, though it's imperfect. And in the same way, Jesus is the one who speaks with the Father in conversation. In fact, as we will find out later, as we'll see later, and as we know from our own study of the Bibles, he is in the Trinity himself. He is God himself, a perfect representation, the exact imprint, as it says in the beginning of Hebrews. Now, Roman numeral number two. We'll switch gears now. We've looked at the similarity of Jesus with Moses. Roman numeral number two, the superiority of Jesus over Moses. The superiority of Jesus over Moses. And in verses three through six, we're going to see two words, key words that come out here. The word glory and the word house. Glory and house are just key words in this thing. And we've gone from the comparison of Moses to Jesus and now the writer is saying there's something greater here. You think Moses was amazing because he spoke 
with me, conversed with me, that I actually gave him my words and he wrote them down, that he was the greatest prophet. But let me tell you, there's something greater when you look at Jesus. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll look at verse 7. Paul picks up this clear picture of the contrast between Moses and Jesus. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory, what is that? Those are the tablets that Moses brought down from the mountain. The Ten Commandments, the law of God. He said if those things came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites could not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened for this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil is over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Beautiful contrast of, hey, listen, you remember in the Old Testament, when Moses came down from meeting with God, they told the people, said, Moses, cover your face. We can't even stand to see the reflection of God from you. The glory coming off you is so great. Please shield your face. It's overwhelming to us. And what the writer, uh, what Paul is saying here is, that was, that was the ministry that reminded us that we were sinners. Can you imagine about the ministry of, the, that of Christ that has made us righteous even though we were sinners? How much greater glory is that? And the writer of Hebrews picks that up here as he speaks of the glory of Christ himself. And he says three things about this. Letter A. First of all, he says it's, it's a matter of in versus over. In versus over. It's what, what uh, Don Riley prayed in his prayer. Moses was a servant in God's house. Jesus Christ was a son over God's house, over the house of God. And as there was an earthly temple, and boy, I tell you, you think Deuteronomy and all that can be really boring until you, really, until you realize that what you're seeing in Deuteronomy, the description of the temple and all that, is really this foreshadowing of what's to come. And so Moses was a faithful servant in the house of God. He, he, he worked in as a great prophet, as a great leader. And the temple was being built. And when the temple, the Old Testament temple was built, you remember what happened? We just read it in, in Numbers. The cloud, the presence of God came to rest in the temple. But the writers of the New Testament said that was just a foreshadowing of what was to come. Because now you have the house of God not being a temple made with hands. But instead, you have something that is more significant. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter, excuse me, 2 Peter. No, 1 Peter, chapter 2. 1 
1 Peter chapter 2. Listen to these words. Peter writing about this building, this temple, says this in verse 4. 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and he talks about this spiritual house. And then what, look what he says in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of a darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter says, listen, there was this Old Testament temple and this Old Testament people that worshipped the temple. But let me tell you something. When Christ has come, he's building a new temple and it's living stones. You are living stones. You are going to be the temple of God and his dwelling is going to be in you, not in that building. And you're being built into a spiritual house. And Christ is head over this great spiritual house. He is the one that's doing this. Second thing, letter B. Servant versus son. A servant versus son. Now, a servant is not meant to be a title that was derogatory. To be called a servant of the Lord. For Moses to be called a servant of the Lord was a, was a high title. That was not, a, that was not a, um, a something like, well, yeah, he's just a servant. I was like, he's a servant of the Lord. That was a high title. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, Moses was just a servant. Jesus Christ is a son. What does that mean? Do you realize the power, and not only the power, but the intimacy that's displayed in Christ? So much greater that you have Christ and not just Moses. So much more. That's why in Isaiah chapter 9, speaking about the coming Christ, you know this from, uh, from our liturgy or our worship services that take place at Christmas. For unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. Not just a servant, but a son. And then letter C, shadow versus reality. Shadow versus reality. This passage in Deuteronomy 18 is extremely important. So let's, let's look at that, Deuteronomy 18, and look at those verses. Again, the writer of Hebrews had this in mind. In fact, probably the reason he had this in mind is because his Jewish uh, believers, the ones he was writing to, they had this in mind because this suggests or was often used to say Moses was going to be the one who was going to come back. Moses is going to be the one who is going to rescue not just people in the Old Testament, but God was going to bring him back, and this is why. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses says this, verse 15. This is Moses speaking. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. And I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded him. Clearly, we understand this is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But these Jewish people would have, would have thought what, what was developed over time was this, was this idea, oh, Moses is going to come back. We're going to see him again. He's going to return. And it was partly true. But what the, what the truth was is he was going to return. The shadow in Moses was going to be returned in the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. Moses was just a forerunner. He was, he was just pointing to. And so the book of Deuteronomy and what you see in the temple was just preparing all of humanity, preparing us for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why knowing our, our Old Testament is so important. Because even, even as we read it, it prepares our hearts to understand the fullness of Jesus Christ. So preparing for Jesus Christ, not only that, Moses and what he wrote in the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus Christ. So as he talks about this prophet that is to come, it was a, a preparation. There's something greater. But not only that, a pointing to. I want you to see Christ. I want you to consider Jesus. That's what the Old Testament is saying. Consider Jesus. And now we get to the application, Roman numeral 3. We'll spend the rest of our time here. The house that Jesus is building. The house that Jesus is building. It says, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting uh, in our hope. It's interesting to think about, okay, what is this house? And we've already mentioned this house is living stones. It's people that Christ has redeemed and he's building this house. Well, what is it about this house? Um, first of all, it's a house that belongs to Christ. Letter A. It belongs to Christ. We are his house. Our churches belong to him. Colossians 1 verse 18 actually is the... Is the uh, the motto of the college that both uh, George Robertson and myself uh, graduated from, a Covenant College on Lookout Mountain. Uh, it's a phenomenal place. If you have sons or daughters or grandsons or granddaughters who are considering college, I would, I would ask you to seriously consider uh, that college. Um, their approach to excellence in education with a Christian worldview, I think, is, uh, is unbeaten anywhere in the country. Of course, I'm biased, so you can go ahead and just consider that as well. But that theme verse, Colossians 1.18, is that Christ is preeminent over all things. It's this idea, and it speaks in that particular context, that he's head over his body, the church. He's head over the church. He's the one that is working. And I tell you, I saw this this past spring in ways that I never dreamed Possible. I never would have imagined. So here we are at Second Presbyterian Church, and, and we've known for a couple of years that Sandy Wilson, one of the longest tenured pastors at Second Presbyterian Church, a great leader, a great man of God, is going to retire, or as I say, retire. You know, he started his interim pastor work at, in Birmingham this last week, so not much of a retirement. But however Sandy would retire, this is what it looks like. He was going to retire. And we're all wondering, there's a lot of things going on in this church, a lot of different ministries, there's a lot of different stuff, there's Amen Bible study, there's worship, I mean this whole culture has been cultivated, I mean what's going to happen when Sandy retires? And then, not on purpose, I promise you, I, I came here in, in, in 2001 
to be a youth director. I had no intention of being involved in any kind of transition, you know, with Sandy Wilson. And all of a sudden, I'm right there with, uh, with several other uh, amazing servants of God. And we're in the midst of this transition. The question was, after February 5th, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to Second Presbyterian Church? And I remember praying and thinking, Lord, if you can get us through Easter, I think we'll be okay. <laughs> that really was my prayer. I told some of you that. I, hey, if we can just get through Easter, I think we'll be okay. I had no idea what that would look like. I told somebody, um, I didn't want, when they wrote the history of Second Presbyterian Church or the revised or the new version of whatever, you know, history 50 years from now, I said, I really don't want my name in the book. And they're like, I know, Todd, you're, you're humble. I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. The only reason my name would be in the book is because I messed something up. <laughs> so when I say I don't want my name in the book, it means if, I, if I'm just a good steward, they'll forget. If I mess things, something up, my name will be in the book. I don't want my name in that book. What's going to happen? I remember walking out of here to get in my car after three worship services on Easter Sunday. Um, and I was overwhelmed with tears. And I had this one thought over and over and over again as I drove home. This church belongs to Christ. I saw firsthand in this transition, this church did not belong to Sandy Wilson. This church did not belong to the legacy of some amazing pastors and amazing men and women for 175 years who have sought to live out the gospel in this city. It doesn't belong to them. It doesn't belong to that legacy. It doesn't belong to the Evangelical Presbyterian Church denomination. This church belongs to Christ. Every church, your church, belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ demonstrated his power. The power of what we saw take place in the last nine months here was not a really good plan. Because I'll tell you, that whole thing could have just blown up in a second. <laughs> and, and the evil one tried to make it blow up. And it wasn't because we had really smart men and women on the transition team, and we did. It was because of the power of Christ. It's His church. We need to remember that. Whatever church we belong to, whatever place we're in, let's never forget that the, that the house of God that's being built in the, in the community in, uh, that you experience, whether you're a member of this church or you're a member of another church, that church belongs to Christ. We are His church. He's the one that's in control of these things. And then letter B about this building. This building, this house that Jesus is building is faithful to Christ. It is faithful to Christ. Last place I want us to turn this morning is 2 Corinthians 13. This is, a, this is really a sobering but I think important verse for us to consider this morning. 2 Corinthians 13, there at the end of his letter, Paul writes this in verse 5. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Such an important verse. He says this, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Bible commands us, Paul says, 
Examine yourselves to make sure you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Make sure you really know Christ. Make sure you're not just assenting with your brain, but that you're resting your life. You know, there's a, there's a level of belief that doesn't save you. You can, you can believe in the facts of the cross, and it will not save you. You can even believe that the facts of the cross and what Christ did on the cross can save people. You can believe that, and it will not save you. Because you know what? Satan believes that. Satan knows the facts of the cross. He actually knows that Christ's work on the cross is a saving work. He knows that. Knowing that doesn't save you. You're saved when you put your light, when you rest your life on Christ. When you throw yourself and say, my salvation completely rests on him. I give myself to you. Jesus, enter my life. I want Jesus in me. And so that's why there at the end of this passage we're reading this morning, it says, if indeed we hold fast. We're his house. If what? If we hold fast to our confidence and our hope. And I want to talk about this for a second because I think this is important here in the last 10 minutes that we have. Holding fast is a big deal. And this isn't legalistic. I'm not talking about legalism here. I'm talking about us fixing our eyes on Christ amidst our circumstances. You know, if you're here this morning and you're in your uh, 20s, maybe early 30s, I think the challenge to you holding fast is that the world is, is telling you that you need to form an identity around what you do. You need to form an identity. You've got to somehow uh, find your, your calling. You've got to somehow, and, it, and your calling, when it's formed, it's got to be formed around what you do. You've got to show yourself to be valuable, and, and it goes beyond just being a good steward of what God has given you. And unfortunately, it's saying, hey, Christ isn't really supreme. What supreme is if you can create for yourself an identity in what you do. And that is the challenge and push on your life at this time of your life. And God's call to you is hold fast to your confidence and your hope in Him. Your identity cannot be in what you do. You will, you will find it very disappointing. Or another thing I'm seeing all the, all the time, and this is why I think so many marriages are failing. Because I'm looking at, at men in their 20s and 30s, early 30s, who is a, is a, are looking for this woman, and even as they find this woman, and they're sitting in my office, I can tell they're thinking, I've found her, this woman will fulfill me. And I'm like, no, there's no woman, that's, there's no woman that can do that for you. <laughs> and as you lean on her for fulfillment, for identity, she will collapse under the weight of what she cannot fulfill. And that's the temptation, that's, the, that's the, the, competing, the competing voices call us away when we're young. When you're, when you're my age, when you're kind of in your middle years, you know, 35 to 55, maybe 60, 
In those years, I think that the thing that calls us away, that, that shakes our confidence, that diminishes our hope, is just the cares of the day, the cares of life. We've got so much stuff we've got to take care of. We're so many people we're taking care of. We got, we're, we're just so busy because we've got to take care of this and this person. We've got to do this and we've got to provide for this. And, we got, and what happens? Without, without, we're just distracted. We're just drawn away. What a blessing it is that, that you men have chosen to be here this morning. The discipline, the practice, the liturgy of saying, I'm going to cultivate a love for God's word. I'm going to cultivate a love for his people. I'm going to cultivate a love for the voice of Jesus by showing up here every morning, at, at every, every Thursday morning at 6.30. Because the temptation in our middle years, what shakes our confidence, what pulls us away, is the everyday cares that distract us. And we can't lose our confidence. We must hold fast to our confidence. We must hold fast to our hope, the real hope, not the hope that we can get everything done. <laughs> the hope of Christ. What is it when we're old? Well, this is starting to, uh, to affect me personally, not just because I'm old. I'm not quite that old. But my father, looking at my father and my father-in-law, who have been my heroes for decades. And I remember this took place. It was, um, it was actually at a, at a, uh, a dinner, a meeting that, that Don Jordan put together. And Chuck Jacob, who many of you know has spoken here before, he spoke to uh, a group of men. Most of those men were in their later years. And he was challenging those men to be mentors. And then Chuck said this, and I may have, I may have said this before. I, I think I talk about this almost all the time because it was so profound and so important. He said to these men as he talked to these older men about their mentoring younger men, about discipling younger men, he said, you've taught us how to live. Please teach us how to die. And I'll tell you, I'm, I'm, a, I'm watching the fears that can overtake you when you get into your 70s and 80s that can shake your confidence. The fears because your body doesn't work the way it used to and your strength seems not uh, to, to avail you when you need it. And sometimes your mind doesn't provide you the opportunities to navigate things like they, they used to. And now the reality that, hey, this thing that I've rested my entire life on, the, the, the gospel of Christ, I'm about to, I'm about to find out. And I watch it shake the confidence of older men. And I would plead with you like Chuck Jacob did. Please teach us how to finish. Because those of us who are behind you are looking at you and saying, oh goodness, if they can't do it, I don't know if I can do it. And so the power of your witness when you're in your 70s and 80s is so profound. So profound. When I watch my father continue on a mission, even at 75, 76, 77, somewhere around there, and I see him doing everything he can to stay as healthy as he can. Why? Not so he can have compliments from the people around him. He's doing it 
because he says, I want to stay as active doing God's work as long as I possibly can. And you know what? My dad fights fears about dying. But he says, Todd, I don't, want, I don't want to lose my confidence in the gospel, my confidence in the hope. How's he not going to do that? How are you not going to do that? Whether you're 75 or 50 or 30. For the competing voices that want you to doubt the supremacy of Christ, how are you going to do that? You're going to do what the writer says here, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. And let nothing shake your confidence. Focus on him. And let nothing shake your hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a beautiful and powerful thing it is to see not only the scripture that we studied this morning, but to see how what we studied this morning is, is permeated, find its way through the whole arc of redemptive history, through the whole Bible. Father, we have been all over the place, and yet there is one theme, there is one theme, there's one strength, there's one strand throughout all of Scripture, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ.